0: RunAsRadio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 707, Unifying Structured and Unstructured Data Using Azure Synapse, with guest Jen Stirrup. Recorded Monday, June 8th, 2020. Run As Radio is produced each week by Sound Thoughts, LLC. For more information, visit soundthoughtsllc.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell. Thanks for listening to Run As Radio, bringing back one of my favorite guests today, Jen Stirrup, who's an industry analyst and speaker and author, a Microsoft data platform MVP, a data strategist, and a practitioner in business intelligence, big data and data visualizations. With nearly 20 years experience, Jen works for global clients to deliver strategic advice and implementation in data technologies, focusing on R, machine learning, database technologies, and big data solutions. And she's one of my favorite people to talk about with data analytics as whole, well, especially these new techs. Welcome back, Jen.
1: Oh, thank you. And for so much for the kind welcome. And I'm really glad to be back. So thank you very much for having me. Yeah. And thank you for letting me talk about my favorite topics, really.
0: It's all good stuff. And I want to open today with a comment off of a different Run As episode. I did a show a while back with Isaac Levin uh, back March of 2019, so a little over a year ago. We were talking about App Insights and you know things that it was good for and so forth, and I thought it was really apropos to talking about Synapse, especially with this is a comment from Brendan Teed uh, again a year ago, and he dug into this issue around the limitations of App Insights. That you need to understand that App Insights uses sampling on both the SDK and Ingress side, and if you're using App Insights for telemetry, this is fine. For this type of data, it's the trend that's important, not so much the details, but problems come from trying to use App Insights for application logging. And he was talking about his project here. He said, our development teams were using Seralog to send custom events to App Insights. And Seralog is a a tool I've talked about on .NET Rocks a number of times for managing logging. Uh, with the intent to coming in there later to troubleshoot a particular uh, interaction. This is not what App Insights is optimized for, and it ended up being a terrible experience due to missing entries uh, and clumsy interactions because it's not built for doing fine-grained sequencing of historical events. And we've now landed on a solution where there are three categories of system data collection, telemetry, app logs for debugging, and audit data. But telemetry, App Insights is awesome, and you can even tie it into learning or even logic apps, which is one way you can trigger automatic scale up and scale down. For application logs, we're using Cosmos DB Sync with Seralog. With, with all the applications coming into the same database, we eventually make it easy for a support staff to search for a particular user or see all the things they did around a particular point in time. And for audit data, such as changing user permissions, we use Azure SQL databases, and because they already have a rock-solid process for exporting and backing up and and storing data in cold storage. Rather than trying to wrestle tools into something that we're not necessarily intended to be, we now feel like things are much more natural. And thanks for the great episode. What I appreciate about your solution there, Brendan, is that you aren't trying to use that everything is a nail mindset, that there are different tools for different reasons there. And that you saw that when you tried to make App Insights be a logging tool, and it's not what its nature is. So that's really brilliant. And I hope that, and I and I brought this comment up just because I thought you know Synapse might be one of the tools that could fit into this today, as opposed to a year ago. Did you want to say something, Jen? Go ahead.
1: I think that organizations really need to get some confidence when they are. Moving into the cloud mm-hmm. and how to be confident that their applications are running as effectively as they expect, and to make sure that they have they got confidence they've made the right decision. Yeah. And very often they just need some evidence, something to say, hey, you know what, this performs really well. Uh, we can spot that our data tells us that the trend over time means it's working. Yeah. And I think once they have that confidence, I think it's a final step, really, of having moved into the cloud. They can see that they are there then.
0: I I love the the cloud tools actually give you more visibility to the state of your applications and resources than you had in your own on-premise data center. Like, there's just better tooling for a lot of that stuff. uh, I'm also realizing that Microsoft makes so many products. That it's really hard to figure out which ones to use for what roles like the the IT conservative of, of I don't want to be first and I don't want to be at the edge of anything like give me the mainstream solution. Uh, it's hard to see when you're looking at the Azure portal at this array of products. So, Brennan, thank you so much for your comment. Uh Run as Radio Mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a Run as Radio Mug, write a comment on the website at runasradio.com or via the social media, since I publish every show to Facebook and to LinkedIn. And if you comment there and I read on the show, I'll send you a mug. All right. I think the original conversation around Azure Synapse starts with a blog post from from the Rohan Kumar, from the VP of Azure Data. So, clearly a data-based product of some kind.
1: Yeah, that's right. I tend to see Azure... Synapse Analytics is really the next step for Azure SQL Data Warehouse. Mm-hmm. And what it's really doing is opening up the world of data warehousing so we're not just looking at relational SQL anymore. We're thinking about data warehousing and data lakes and data integration all in the same space.
0: Okay. Now, should we define the differences between those things?
1: So, uh, yeah, I don't know if you've come across this, but very often people will say things like, should I have a data warehouse or should I have a data leak?
0: Right, and and they're different.
1: Yes, they are. And I think what happens is people think it's an either or Mm -hmm. scenario. I'll explain what I see both of those entities and describe what they actually are. And then we can have a look at how they come together under Azure Synapse. Because very often I think Microsoft produce all these tools, and people look at them and say, "Oh, I don't know which one to use," mm-hmm. and then they start to step back and say, "Right, I'm not going to do anything because I'm confused." Yeah. And they do get into analysis paralysis, and it's unfortunate. But in the old world of business intelligence, data warehousing was your your repository for your business information. So you could actually go and find out about your transactions, and usually they were sliced and diced by different dimensions, such as your products, your customers, looking at things happening over time. And they were based on a very simple premise, that something happens somewhere at a particular point in time. And the Data Warehouse was that version of the truth. Mm-hmm. And that sounds fine. But then the real world hits. So data warehouses tended to be very technical and they took a very long time to build. I saw one customer um, do a data warehouse alongside a project I was doing. And that project lasted for two years. Wow. Building a data warehouse. It was a long time. These things were beasts, really. And unfortunately, that project failed from the business point of view. It worked technically fine. It was perfect. It worked fast. It was built as per the waterfall project. Right. But the data warehouse was no longer relevant because it did not include any of the current business scenarios.
0: Interesting. So, is is because it took so long to develop that the original requirements were no longer relevant?
1: Absolutely. And people spent a fortune in these things, Mm -hmm. you know, building them. It was a huge waste of money. So then two things happened. Businesses demanded faster and better. It's the old adage, you can have fast, good or cheap, but not all three. (laughs) Pick two. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) But businesses want all three and they want them yesterday. I don't know if you find this, but in my experience, businesses are a bit like children. They want everything now. They tend to want things that aren't good for them. (laughs) And they basically stamp their feet until they get them. (laughs) So it's like detailing with a toddler sometimes. Oh, that's funny. And it's very true.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, that's very funny. Yeah, I can't argue with you there. Uh, Well, I mean, but we wrap it in fun language like return on investment and, and, uh, you know, value proposition and so forth. I don't know that it's true.
1: <laughs> that really drove the two other things that happened when data warehousing wasn't successful. One is that everyone went to Excel. Mm-hmm. And the second thing was this data lake thing was born. So everybody knows that Excel is one of the most successful applications on the planet. If any organization tells you they don't have Excel hiding in people's hard drives, they are not looking properly.
0: The number of times I've talked to folks on this show over the years that said, you know, we ran the Microsoft assessment tool and just found databases. It's it's not as bad as SharePoint, but it's up there.
1: Yes, it absolutely is. And the problem with Excel is it doesn't have good traceability. So one of my customers said to me, where does Excel go when it leaves the building? And I thought, <laughs> wow, there's a question. That's a
2: great I said, question. So
1: tell me what happened. And to cut a very long story short, someone had rented some data from a marketing company and they it was only built and designed and licensed for use in one department. But of course, somebody sent it to the friend in another department. And then it was so useful, it made its way around the building and made its way into the SQL Server databases that were in three different data centers around the UK and backed up. So the first lawyer's letter said, get the data off your website because it even gone to there. The second lawyer's letter said, get this out of the databases. And the third lawyers later said, "Get that Excel data out of your backups." so what it turned into one Excel spreadsheet was just a whole comedy of errors, yeah. even Shakespeare would be proud <laughs> of the comedy that ensued
0: but it's 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 literally viral. it has spread because it was productive like what well, imagine it that's a bad thing that it was productive, and so it spread without proper licensing
1: absolutely. Yeah, Excel is a virus sometimes, that's very mm-hmm. true. But then the second thing that happened was that people said, hey, we don't want to do that Excel stuff, but we do want to do data transformation, but we don't want to build packages that will clean our data for us. What we want to do is pour our data into a big place, and then we will shape the The data at the point of the query basically will shape it when we need it. Mm -hmm. So that's where data lake comes from. So it's a bit like a data attic where basically you push your data, you leave it there until you need it and you forget about it. It's costing you money because it's taking up storage.
0: Sure. And, and is do you really apply any order to data lake data?
1: And You can, but it's hard to query. Business users are not good at querying yeah. big data stores. So you have to make it easy for them. So that's where Synapse really comes from. It's trying to give people the rigor of data warehousing with the flexibility of a data lake. And it's trying to do that by making data integration more simple, because the holy grail of business intelligence is to get to a single version of the truth. And as an industry, we have never done that. We have failed miserably.
0: Sure. Because I've also seen the argument that the downside to data warehouses is because you do structure the data, you tend to shave the edges off of it. And, and, and so often some of the most interesting information just gets lost or is never in there.
1: Yes, that's right. And you're, what you're doing is structuring the questions mm-hmm. that the business users may ask of the data. The way that I see it is that business users tends to have two different types of questions. So the first types of questions are business puzzles, so business puzzles are where you have very well-defined questions with very well-defined answers. The other type of question tends to be business mysteries. where the business users don't tend to have a well-defined question and they don't really know what the answer is. So the well-defined questions tend to be things like very repeatable financial reports Right. where you run a report and you get your month end or something like that. So that's your puzzle. But businesses tend to grow where there's a mystery. And that mystery can be, hey, what do our customers do when they leave our service? Where do they go and why? So you have to do things like segment your customers, and you have to understand what's the characteristics of these customers? Why are they leaving us, and what do they do? So Synapse is trying to bring together the data warehouse the data lake and data integration, all because companies are really looking at trying to join together that structures data Mm -hmm. with semi-structured data. And as another ask, they're trying to make it easier for everyone to understand and work with that data. And there's always a lot of data Mm -hmm. as well.
0: Yeah of questioning the value, right? Is that it's a lot, but is it useful?
1: Absolutely. And we talk about big data, Mm
0: -hmm. but we
1: forget that often it's the little data that runs the organization, Mm -hmm. which is why we end up with Excel again.
0: Well, and I always hope that Excel is an endpoint, but not a source of data, but I don't think that's true.
1: I think it's uh, actually sometimes a lot worse than that. Oh. You end up with it being a source and then appearing again six Excel sp- spreadsheets later because it's come back in again. Wow. Somewhere else.
3: Yeah.
0: yeah. And you
1: end up with these daisy chains of Excel spreadsheets.
0: Yes. Yeah, so it's, it, I could see you getting into a trap where you're literally in a loop where the, the the data becomes self-referential. Like it may not be correct even. Like that's what always scares me about Excel when it's a data source is it was largely often hand-created or tweaked or modified where it's like, is this still the truth?
1: I know. One of my customers calculated the median by picking the middle number of a column, which was in a series of other columns. So it was basically like a table with rows and columns. And they picked the middle row of the middle column and I try to explain to them the median is where you put the data in ascending order and pick the middle number and what you're doing is every time you change the order of the surrounding columns you're changing the value of the median because you've just said it's the middle number in a column rather than Looking at it and saying, "Okay, so let's sort them in ascending order." So the median actually depended on how they sorted the data. Right. And it, and this is basic stuff. There's probably people listening to this thinking, "Well, hang on, my you know my kids can calculate the median. Why can't businesses do that?"
2: <laughs> but that's where
1: Excel can go wrong sometimes yeah, sure. because the veracity is not there. Yeah. But what we're trying to do, it's a very hard thing. We've got all these different data workloads, different data types, and different ways of accessing the data. So I think Synapse is trying to answer a very hard thing that businesses are trying to do, which is allow the business to work with data as business analysts, but also let the data scientists in it as well. Interesting. And make sure that governance is happy and that the data is accurate. So it's a big ask, and Azure Synapse is really trying to bring all that together.
0: That's awesome. And Jen, I'm going to interrupt for one moment for this very important message. This episode of Run As Radio is brought to you by the Humanitarian Toolbox. Humanitarian Toolbox builds open source software for disaster relief organizations. One of the leading projects called Already focuses on getting volunteers into the right place at the right time using cloud and mobile technology. HTBox builds and operates this and other applications on behalf of a variety of disaster response organizations, and they need your help. Go to HTBox.org for more information or to make a tax-deductible donation. HTBox is a 501c3 U.S. registered charity. And we're back. It's Run As Radio. I'm Richard Campbell. That's Jen Stirrup. We're talking about Azure Synapse and this idea of bringing all these pieces together. And admittedly, at the time we're doing this, which is in June of 2020, it's still in preview, right? Like this is a V1 of a very challenging product.
1: Absolutely. And it's really aimed at the most challenging type of data. It's going to be targeted at data sets, which are probably very compute intensive because they could be doing data scientist workloads. The data itself can be hugely intensive as well because there's lots of data coming in at very high speeds. Particularly if you are dealing with data from sensors, we need to pick that up, clean it, and do things with it. Mm-hmm. And we need to think about what we can do with older mainframe types of data sources as well. So I think previously when we started looking at big data, we started to consider things like Hadoop. So Hadoop was the big thing. Yes. Yeah, so that really meant that all the computers moved to the data. But actually, when we're dealing with all of these different data workloads, we need to think about how does that work in the cloud? Mm -hmm. So then we went back to separating compute from data again, because that fits perfectly with a cloud model. And the things with analytics is you don't tend to have a very steady state of analytics in some ways. People want a lot all at once, or sometimes they don't want as much because it's the middle of the month or they're just due to run up to a big campaign and they want to examine the data afterwards. Mm-hmm. So that really means that the cloud comes back in again because you've got a lot of bandwidth of data, but you don't always need the same amount of computes to go along with that. Yeah, And then we, we see that organizations have got the ambition to use artificial intelligence as well. And that's the other side, when we start to look at analytics, how can organizations implement artificial intelligence as part of that maturity model right. in their organization and work with data? Because that's the latest oh. buzzword.
0: <laughs> and if we, so if we're thinking in terms of, I, know, I, I really dislike the term artificial intelligence, because near as I can tell, anytime something in that space works, they give it a new name. Yeah. Right. As soon as it, as, as soon as it was getting good at image recognition, they call it vision systems, not artificial intelligence. So anytime you put it under the AI banner, it's like, so that's the stuff that doesn't work. Right. <laughs>
2: uh,
0: but thinking specifically about these learning models, the neural net type where you have to have training data, I would think your data lake serves you better there than the data warehouse. Does it matter?
1: I think what really matters is clean data, right? regardless of where it comes from. And I think there's two main types of AI problems. One is where you use it for prediction, mm-hmm. and the other is when you use it for exploration. So with prediction, you're really more likely to have a regular data set, and you're using that data to maybe predict an outcome, mm-hmm. something like predicting, say, maintenance failures or... You could use it to predict and respond to speech or to written texts, even chatbots. Right. But then we had to come into the problem where we don't have a hypothesis for what's in the data. I worked in a project like that a while ago. I was trying to use data in order to predict homelessness. And the idea is that you're trying to stop it before it starts and you're trying to protect people who are in very precarious situations. Right. And that's more important when we think about the virus because we make comparisons with the 2008 economic situation there. Mm -hmm. But that mainly impacted people who had mortgages. Right. Whereas the difference with the virus is it impacts renters.
0: Interesting because they couldn't be because they were laid off and couldn't pay their rent that month, and you know evictions happen quickly.
1: Exactly. So exactly, and in the UK, they've um, set up a law which is in place for about three months mm-hmm. where they can't evict people because right. they can't pay the rent.
0: And that creates a whole other set of problems because, you know, certainly that same similar thing happened in Canada. And then immediately out comes these stories of folks that were already in an eviction process for something other than rent, you know, not paying their rent, suddenly not being able to be evicted. Like, But I appreciate the goal was we didn't need we don't need a whole bunch of homeless people or mass evictions going on there. That doesn't help anyone. It's good to just be able to pause uh, for a few yes. months. Yes. As long as the landlords also get a break too, because they suddenly aren't, they still have to pay their mortgages.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that it started off with a good intention, Mm -hmm. as these things often do. But then, of course, reality hits and it becomes really complex. So, with that particular situation, we had lots of characteristics of people, but no real understanding of what was most likely to be the biggest predictor, and a lot of the data was missing, as you might imagine. So that's more exploratory because you're looking at the data and thinking, hey, what patterns can I find? You know you're looking for something that predicts homelessness, Mm -hmm. but it's not like you have a very tidy data set with a label. It says homeless or not homeless.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, that's not going to work out that way. I, I think you need to do that initial analysis to say, what are the things that lead to homelessness?
1: Yeah, and it becomes more complex because people don't always recognize themselves as homeless. They can be sofa sufferers, mm-hmm. staying with a friend for a while, even though technically they would be homeless. They don't always describe themselves as that. Right. So that makes it more complex because the data set's not good. And I think with artificial intelligence, it really opens up the opportunities to use Synapse for those Regression or prediction type scenarios, mm-hmm. and also those exploratory scenarios, where people basically want to throw data at a wall, see what sticks, right. and then that becomes a new hypothesis.
0: Yeah, it's yeah.
1: a very interesting process, and it's much more trial and error than people actually think.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and and but it is. This is the sort of data science part of this whole equation of you need to build a hypothesis, build a set of tests to explore that hypothesis, and then work the data.
1: Yes, and there will always be a place for SQL. I know Mm -hmm. we talk about learning Python and so on and learning Spark and so on and so forth, but it's really with Azure Synapse that also is a strong use case for SQL because it's in there as well. Mm -hmm. So we can use the SQL engine. And that will move data for you between various performance tiers. So you get fast data that allows you to think about that hypothesis and formulate it. And then you can also move on to move Spark Analytics as well. Yeah. And that allows you to really analyze the data. And data scientists tend to be very comfortable with that. And it does that really by combining Azure Data Factory, moving data around Mm -hmm. with the SQL Data Warehouse. And putting these things together, as your Data Factory can work well with different types of data sources and moving data around. And it also means we can have our code nice and organized, our data is organized, and it allowing people to interact with the data, whether they're a SQL person or more of a data scientist.
0: Sure. And I do see that in the data side of things in general, we're starting to get a little bit more of the programmers formality around that code gets checked into a repository it's under change control multiple people can actually work on it. i mean for a long time i felt like analysts lived in a bubble where your an- your analysis was yours nobody else really used it they only ever saw the in product the idea that you would share the, the queries you'd built and the, the tooling you'd put together to do that analysis was rare
1: Yes, that's true. And I do see that in organizations. They can be very siloed. Mm-hmm. So what happens is if the data is siloed, the insights and the analytics are siloed as well. Right. And the data lake, ideally, is trying to get round that problem by removing those silos yeah. from a technical perspective.
0: Wait, it- do you think we're at a place now where the, those ETL processes to sort of clean that data up and the kinds of querying they're doing can be shared as well as the data?
1: Yes, I see moves towards that. You can see look, the opportunities to share and collaborate in note, notebooks. Mm-hmm. So Microsoft, I've got Azure notebooks so you can start to interact there. And also we have the Spark um, aspects to interacting with it in that way. So that's good. And also using Azure Data Factory means those pipelines being stored in the cloud are, it's much easier to collaborate on those. So I think that it will move towards collaboration, but I think it might be a bit slow. I think sometimes organizations don't have a proper data catalog right. of the data and until they do that, um, they don't always understand the data. And I think that we talk a lot about AI, particularly Mm -hmm. having a winter. And what we mean by that is we start and stop adoption of AI. And I think where data science and AI both have in common is that they are both buzzwords. But people don't really know how to measure the success of them or not. They don't understand the maths, they don't understand the statistics, right. they don't understand how do I know when my model is effective, what does it tell me, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Yeah. So I think, although I think AI probably won't have another winter, I think it might get a bit chilly because <laughs> people look at these systems and think, oh, well, how do I know if it works? Yeah. Prove it to me. How does it work?
0: Which they're very fair questions. Like those are good questions to ask. And if you can't answer them well, then you have a problem with your model. Like I, I think we're seeing a lot of pushback on this whole. Uh, I just believe the computer thing because that's bad. You really do want a provable model, and and you, and you want your users to be to ask you that question, and you'd be excited to answer it.
1: Yes, absolutely. I think that's the difficulty in adopting these systems, Mm -hmm. people want to translate them into return on investment, but it's quite difficult to measure data as an asset and how you're extracting value from it. And also people, I think, find it hard to accept responsibility sometimes. So if you can delegate responsibility to the machine, it means it wasn't your fault. Right. But then who's accountable is it the person that developed that particular model, or is it the IT team that led the project? Is it the business leader who said, "Hey, I want to cut costs. Go and do that." So it becomes quite a devolved responsibility.
0: Sure, and or I you, think
1: we you, do need to keep ethics very much at the centre. Yeah. of what we're doing.
0: You also blame the cloud provider too, right? I mean, that, isn't that that's a great angle on Azure, giving you somebody else to blame?
1: Yes, exactly. <laughs> it's so true. It's unfortunate, but I think it's just human nature. And the way that people respond to data says a lot about them. I think.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I I really like this idea of a data catalog, or this. And I think what you're implying there is how much institutional knowledge about data for an organization lives in the heads of a handful of DBAs and analysts, and nowhere else.
1: That's right. I do see that a lot, and I see organizations where they, some of the business people understand the data mm-hmm. and they're constantly bailing out everyone else. Right. And I tend to see that in organizations where some people have been working there for a very long time. But eventually, those people will retire. Yeah. So they can't take all that knowledge with them without sharing it, but very often it seems like they do. I saw an example recently, someone retiring from an organization. They'd been there for over 30 years, and it shouldn't have been a surprise that they were retiring. But a few weeks before they left, somebody said, oh, hey, hang on a minute. We might want to go and ask him a few things before he goes. But by this point, he was demobbed. He was happy right? (laughs) and certainly not really thinking about how can I share everything? He'd already mentally left the building. And I can't blame him. It was
0: um, an
1: interesting thing.
0: It's not not that person's fault either, right? It's like, listen, the the fact that you have allowed this information to accumulate inside of this person and not captured in any other way Yes. A, you know, that you, it's a risk to business, uh, as is generally, you know, with the funny thing is you said this very clearly, too. It's like we don't understand the value in our data. It's like I would argue that is the value of the organization is that data. And the fact that we don't have good wrappers around it, that it ends up being stored in individuals that when they go on vacation, a whole class of work just cannot proceed. That's madness. You wouldn't allow this anywhere else. Why is it still happening here?
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think Azure Synapse is really trying to remove some of those mm-hmm. business blockers by saying, hey, you asked for everything in one place, so it was easy. We've done that. We've You wanted SQL. We've done that. We, give, we gave you data science. Yeah. <laughs> we told you we, we split compute from storage. We've done that. So they're trying to tick all of those boxes. And I think it would just take time before organizations start to say, hang on a minute, we can no longer really see that we can't do these things because we can't get at the data. There has to be an impetus for organizations to do that. But that really has to come from the top, I think. Yeah. We need executive sponsorship to set the scene for the rest of the organization. To be data savvy, or at least try to be data savvy.
0: <laughs> I do appreciate you bringing up the Jupyter notebooks too, because that seems a, a way for people's explorations to be documented and retained. Uh, I think it's, what's interesting is then to think of the same way you would think about somebody's mailbox when they leave. What happens to it after that person's not in the loop or during when that person's on vacation? do we have access to that information in an appropriate way? Because a notebook seems very personal, and yet it's probably the best description of the metadata around data analytics for an organization. And and so is valuable to anyone who needs to work in that space.
1: I agree. I love notebook. Mm-hmm. I think that, in particularly if you're dealing with Databricks, for example, it's such a nice way to interact with data. There's no excuse not to comment that. You know the cells are right there. Sure. And I think what's different with them um, dealing with data and normal coding is that I t- personally I find coding, say um, something in .NET or something, I tend to find that a more linear mm-hmm. experience. I do this and then I do this and then I do this and then I clean up and then I do this. Right. But with data, it doesn't work like that. No. It's very hypothesis driven so you try something it fails you move forwards you try something else and notebooks are really good for that way of thought. where this is not linear anymore
0: yeah well and i think you're, you're getting to a real essential point here which is that in programming typically the last version of the code is the only version that's interesting and yet, all of the data is always interesting. And so, you know, those learnings from those early analysis that you would end up in a notebook as you worked your way down experimenting, anybody reading through that is going to learn something about the data in the process.
1: Yes, I agree. And you do learn so much as you go along.
0: Because
1: mm-hmm. I think we try, we, we fail, we try again. Yeah. and And it's okay to do that. I really think you learn 10 things along the way that you didn't know before, Mm -hmm. and notebooks that allow you to record what you tried. And I don't see it as a fail. I tend to see it as things that you can explore at a later date, but they don't quite meet the business requirement right now.
0: Yeah. They're all edges around around the thing. So let me ask you this question. You are in consulting, and you like using Jupyter Notebook. When you're working with a particular customer, uh, do you do you use notebooks and then when you finish with them, like do you give them the notebook somehow? Like how do you pass what you learned in those explorations back to the customer?
1: Well you can share notebooks, you mm-hmm. can do that in Azure, but what I tend to do Is I try not to touch the keyboard at all.
0: Interesting.
1: Because I feel I've failed if I've done that. Yeah. I want to mentor the team Mm -hmm. and lead them to a good place. And if I'm having to do it for them, then it means I'm failing in my responsibility to impart my knowledge, really. I'll sometimes give them here's a template, here's an example. Right. Go and try it and see what you think. And often they come back with their own way of doing it. And then we can look at it as a team, you know, say you have a team review and you can say, okay, so we did it this way. How would the rest of you like to approach this? It's not that this is wrong, but if we set this as a little reusable template in some way, what does everyone think? So I spend spend time with organizations trying to sort out things like naming conventions, Mm -hmm. the stuff that seems really boring, but you work better in the long run by investing that time. So that's what I tend to do. I do try and help lead them towards it. And I think doing it with a notebook is such a nice way to do that. Yeah. Because like you say, I can share notebooks and I can invite others to collaborate on them. Yeah. And it's just a really nice way of working.
0: Yeah, I like the idea that then in your role as the advisor, you get them to set up that shared notebook so that everybody's contributions are visible to each other, but make sure those contributions stay within the organization.
1: Exactly. Mm Because my goal is to get them to a better place than they were Mm -hmm. before I arrived on site. Yeah. And my goal is for me to leave, actually. Yeah. (laughs) Without them,
3: (laughs) I
0: and I always confuse my customers. Like, my goal is you do not need me. You know, I'll spend enough time to get to a place where you are you know, happy and productive and you've solved these problems and you just don't need to call because there's, I don't run out of work. Like there's an infinite supply of work for these kinds of problems.
1: Absolutely. And I think I, I get very bored. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it's a butterfly mind, but I don't really want no, no, to no, say yeah
0: it, We've learned to harness our ADD for the forces of good, right? The fact that you can dive into a problem, help them solve it and progress, and then don't get hung up on that problem. Move to the next one.
1: Absolutely, because there's so many interesting problems to solve in data mm-hmm. that I don't feel that I have to be the one that personally solves all of them. Yeah. There's plenty of problems for everyone to solve. I don't need to own them all. Yeah. And I like watching people grow. Yeah, So what I love about doing that sort of structure with people where I'm mentoring them mm-hmm. through the process as I'll step them through the problem. And everyone knows how to do this. They may just need a little drawing out.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So the first step is, can we connect to the data? Right. If we can do that, then we are in a good place.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And then I'll try to do some basic data visualization. And that might be something like, hey, let's just do a chart which simply shows how many rows we've got of data. Or just show me the time. I don't care. Let's just see if we can extract the date and time from this thing and display it on the screen. And once people do that, it's like, hey, look, you know, we connected. Now we've done a really simple chart. Let's move on to something more complex. And I tend to move on then towards descriptive statistics. Right. What's the mean? What's the what's the max? That kind of thing. And that helps us to explore the data better and if we don't know what the column's been, it's a good time just to list them out and go and find out exactly what we're working with.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and get them into that, explore the data mode first, right? They really have a sense of they understand what's in there.
1: Yes. And I think it's all about confidence as well. Because mm-hmm. sometimes IT people and data people sometimes don't want to talk to the business. Yeah. So I have to say, look, let's just go and ask them. And I don't know why it's such a boundary, but I think when you work in large organizations particularly, there is that mental boundary where people don't feel they can walk over to a different floor and go and ask someone. So that's where I come in because being a consultant, I'm not shy. I should maybe develop shyness
2: (laughs) as a
0: career goal. (laughs)
1: I would say, right, I'm going to ring them and I'm going to set up an appointment.
0: Yeah, and just ask those questions. And it's amazing the difference that that makes.
1: Yeah, I think sometimes people need someone who's going to step out in front. And I think that's all it is. Sometimes, okay, you go first. You, You do that. We'll follow. That's fine by me. You know, I probably embarrass myself every day. I don't care.
0: Well, that's the power of the consultant. I'm always the new person. Hey, I'm I'm new here. I'm just going to ask this question, right? Just reach out, right? And it's it's useful to take that on. Uh, Jen, such a fun conversation. I think we've really taken a tour around. It's not just about this product, but this larger problem of extracting value from the data, right? Pursuing some of those business mysteries, so to speak.
1: Yes. (laughs) That's
0: true. <laughs> Jen Stirrup, thanks so much for coming back on the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Richard. Thank you.
0: And we'll talk to you next time on Run Radio.